Zechariah chapter 13, and let's get uh, into our study tonight, if you would please. And uh, we'll do this. Uh, we'll do this quickly. All right. All right. If you'll recall, I did announce this uh, Sunday night that immediately following the service tonight, we'll be having our annual uh, budget slash business meeting. All right. We'll take care of that. So let's get to the text tonight. Let's take care of this uh, chapter. We have three verses left in this chapter. But a huge, huge, huge amount of information is in these three verses, all right? So let me, let's, let's bring ourselves up to speed. We find uh, that in, in chapter 13 is closely connected with chapter 12. Uh, and it, it's, it's obvious that he's talking about some future events. Uh, the future uh, events that we are anticipating, of course, is the coming of the Lord. All right. Now we find <clears throat> that Zechariah loves, he loves the phrase in that day. When he uses that phrase in that day, he's talking about that day of the Lord in which uh, the, his kingdom will be set up, the, on, uh, the throne will be uh, fixed, everything, everybody will be focusing their attention on, on worshiping uh, the, the Messiah, the one and true and only living God. Okay. And it's important that we understand that, the only true and living God. All right. Now, do we understand the, 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 the importance of just that statement? There's a lot of others who are worshipped. They're, they're not true. All right. And then secondly, they're not living. All right. And so when we don't, when we don't have somebody who's true, when we don't have somebody who's living, then, uh, man, what hope do they have? They have zero hope. Well, we have a great hope. Because we have a great God. He is true and he is living. Zechariah, in fact, alludes to that uh, in this chapter. So here's what he's talked about in chapter 13 uh, in the first part. The first eight verses, there's two thoughts, uh, or actually one thought that we had uh, with um, uh, some sub-thoughts, all right, some sub-points underneath that. The first thing in, is the removing uh, of sin. And he deals with this because there is a problem. There is a problem in the fact that there's people who are guilty that need to be clean. How many would say this tonight? I'm guilty. All right. We're all guilty, right? All right. We're all sinners. We're all guilty before a holy God. And there's none righteous, no, not one. We understand those truths that we find in, in the Word of God. And so he, he is dealing. Zechariah is talking about that and dealing with that. More importantly, he's talking to the nation of Israel because they have had a serious problem with idolatry. Their entire history has had a very serious problem with idolatry. That's why the Lord said, first two commandments, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, now shalt not make unto thee any graven images. He's made those statements, and he made them on purpose as the first two, because if we get those two right, then a lot of the other commandments will fall in the line, fall in place. Uh, but Israel had issues with that, and it, it, it goes along with the, uh, the, um, the problems that they had throughout their entire history. But here's what's happening, okay? While we find the removing of sin and that the guilt uh, of people, uh, now they're going to become clean. Um, there is, there, there's something to be said with that because of, uh, of what God is doing with the nation of Israel. This actually is the close of their history as we would know it, all right? It's coming to an end. 
the things that they have been involved with for all of these years, and even since 1948, all of those things are going to come to an end because now Jesus is coming back. The Antichrist, will, will dis, will, he'll be gone. And uh, the worship, that's the setting up of his kingdom, the kingdom of God is going to be on this earth and he alone will be worshipped, all right? And so the history as we know it concerning Israel, all of that's coming to a close. Now, I know there's a lot more details within the scheme of everything that I just said in the last two minutes, all right? A lot more details. We're not dealing with all those details tonight, but however, here in this chapter... There's the removing of sin. And then we saw this as well. We saw the prophets and we saw how those fraudulent prophets needed to be dealt with. And so he's dealing with them. Okay, uh, He talked about the idolatry in verse, uh, uh, in verse 2. And then he began talking about those fraudulent prophets in verse 3, 4, 5, and 6. Now we closed out last week making some kind of rather bold statements about verse 6. And, and, and we've seen this before, I've heard of it before, I've, I've read a plethora of things about that and where, where some think and hold that verse 6 is a reference to Jesus Christ. And If we look at the text very carefully, we recognize carefully that it is not referring to him, it couldn't be referring to him at all. However, what we do find in verse 7, 8, and 9, he is definitely talking about Jesus Christ the Messiah. So again, verse six, a reference: the wounds, all right, uh, the the being uh, slain in the house of his friends, and all that's not a reference to uh, to Jesus Christ. Jesus would never say, "I'm not a prophet," because he he was. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. All right, all throughout the ages, as we as we know and read in the text of Scripture. So let's do this, all right. And I've kind of brought everybody up to speed real quickly on those first six verses. Uh, so let's read them, all right? We're going to read. We're going to begin at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter. It's just nine verses. We'll read that, and then we'll come back, and we'll deal with verse 7, 8, and 9 tonight, all right? The Bible says, verse 1, In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say unto him, Thou shalt not live, but thou speakest lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall come to pass in that day. That the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision. When he hath prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, watch this carefully now, I am no prophet, I am an husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, what are these wounds in thine hands? Then he shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. Again, it's not a reference to Jesus but to a false prophet. May I remind everybody that Satan will have his false prophet. He will, he will be very, very prominent for a one world religious system that exists on the, in the world. It's coming. It's coming. It's, it, in fact, it is developing right now. That system, a system in this world where 
where there will be the forcing of people to worship in this one world religious system. All right? It's coming. I'm telling you, it's coming. Watch this now, verse 7. Here's where things change. Awake! O sword against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, it is my people. Mm. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. Wow. Now, let's look at these three verses tonight. I want you to uh, pay attention to this. Secondly, within this chapter, we're talking about the cleansing of the nation and, and that whole process. The first thing, again, removing of the sin. We have the, 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 the cleansing that takes place. The fraudulent prophets, uh, they are, are being dealt with and they will cease. But now I want you to talk about remembering the Savior. Remember the Savior. Who is He? It's Jesus. This verse tells us much about him. Look at these couple of things here real quickly. First of all, he talks about a sword. All right, there's a sword, the sword that is mentioned here. What is this a reference to? It, it is an expression of the highest power of the justice system in the land. The sword. Always, when you look at it in Scripture, it, it always references the highest power power of justice and judgment. God used the sword numerous times to bring judgment, not only on Israel, but also on other nations. Other nations that opposed Israel or that oppressed Israel, uh, God would use the sword against them and, and he would slay them whenever, whenever it was a, a problem. Remember, remember the battle of Ai? It was a sword that, that, that took place. In, in some, some situations it was symbolic, of course, but at the same time, physically, a sword was used to bring judgment upon the people uh, that were opposing God or who were unclean or who, who needed uh, uh, that judgment passed upon them. So the Lord uses that numerous times. and He uses it against sin, and it represents the taking of a life due to sinfulness. Do we understand? We, we're all here tonight. We know what the Bible says, right? The wages of sin is... That's the sword. Because people died by the sword. Again, it's representative of that, that judgment, the, the highest level. Numerous times it's mentioned in relation to the judgment of sinful activity, whether it's the nation of Israel or whether it is another nation that was involved. But notice also this in verse number 7. There's several things here. He uses, he says, awake, O sword, or, or be alert. Uh, everybody needs to be awakened to what is getting ready to happen. Judgment is coming. Do we understand who's bringing that judgment? God's bringing that judgment, right? All right. There's only one who is allowable to judge accurately and righteously and justly, and that is God. Okay, so he's saying, awake, O sword, oh, judgment is coming. Now watch what he says. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now notice this in the text, that it is the Lord of hosts that is speaking. He says that. Uh, let, let's read it. He says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. 
who do you think the Lord would say would be his shepherd? Now we know what David said. David said, the Lord is my shepherd. But if the Lord of hosts is speaking and he says, I want you to awake, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Who do you think he's referring to? Who is the good shepherd? Who is the great shepherd? Who is the chief shepherd? Okay, so there, there, there is a, a reference, a symbolic reference here to Jesus. And let's, let me further identify this, okay? He is, he is saying here within the text again, against my shepherd. It's, it's no one else. It could be no one else but Jesus himself who is that great shepherd, good shepherd, chief shepherd. And the connection here is with the Almighty, the Lord of hosts, who is the Almighty One, the one who has all authority over all things. All right? But here's where the connection gets even better. He's revealing, what he's doing is that he's revealing his love for his son because of what Jesus did. Now remember this, that Jesus, the Bible says in John 3, 16, we know it, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we put all those connections together. God gave his son to the world, but he also gave his son to judgment. Think about it now. He gave his son to die. And his death secures our salvation. Is that not right? His death made possible is made, makes it possible by which we can live and have eternal life. So, so God the Father is saying, he's my shepherd. The sword of judgment is going to come upon him. Now when Jesus went to the cross of Calvary, he in fact, judged sin on the cross of Calvary. When we talk about the judgment of sin, that's when it happened. What did he do then? His blood, the blood he shed on Calvary, that entire agonizing event, his blood cleanseth us from all sin. Sin is judged at Calvary. The sword of judgment came upon the shepherd, upon the one who is the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, upon Jesus Christ, the one whom God says, I love, not only do I love the world, but I love my son. But yet that judgment is passed. And that judgment has passed on him and come to him whereby you and I can have our sins judged at that moment as well. All right, So there is a great connection here with this. And he's revealing not only his love for his son, but also his love for you and I when he says that. Now, there's, another, there's something else here that's extremely important in the text that identifies Jesus Christ. Notice this again. Let's read it again. He says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow. There is a single man... That is his fellow. Now, it's oddly enough, this is, this is the only time you find those two words connected together like that. Usually what we find, the, the Hebrew word is a reference to a neighbor. And the only other place that we find that word in all of the Bible is in the book of Leviticus. When it's talking about the neighbor. 
So here he is saying, and what does this mean? It simply means this, it is a binding together. There is a bond and a binding together between the one who's speaking, which happens to be the Lord of hosts, and the man who is the fellow. The man who is the, not only the fellow, that's the binding, but who is the shepherd, as he references here. There's only one possible answer to the connection between these two. And that is God the Father and God the Son. That's the only connection that there could be. It's the only way that happened. So the reference here being to no one else but Jesus, but the, the, the idea behind the word my fellow, it, it references to those who are united together. Whether they are united by law, whether they are united by rights, or whether they're reunited by privilege. In fact, the root of that word means to bind together. It has a reference to people who have a common, a common bond or a common origin. That's where it makes it even greater connection, a greater connection between God the Father and Jesus Christ, His Son. All right? So this Fellow, my fellow, it's the binding together. It is the original or the origin of two people, someone who have a common origin. All right? Now, God the Father and God the Son have a common origin. Would you agree with me? All right, they're both eternal, the eternal in the past, and they'll be eternal in the future. There is nothing that is going to stop them. Yes, Jesus Christ was God manifest in the flesh. I get that. I understand that. But, you, but Jesus himself said, I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's a great connection between the two. There is a there's the common origin between the two of them is this binding that is together. Now, I'm going to go one step further. Now, I think... With these things that I've given to you, it kind of proves to us the identity of the shepherd and the connection with the Lord of hosts. But someone has written something, and I'm, I'm going to quote it. I didn't think of it. That's why I have it, and I'm telling you in advance that I didn't come up with it. But I am quoting from a great author from back in the 1400s, the 14th, 1500s. And here's what it says. When God is speaking here in this text, he is saying, when he says, my fellow, he is saying, my companion, my associate, my friend, my confidant, one who is united to me, I associate myself with him. He is my equal. He is my nearest of kin. And when you put it like that, there is no other connection between the shepherd that he speaks of here who will experience the judgment of the sword and the Lord of hosts who says, he's my fellow. He's my confidant. He is my associate. He is my companion. He is my nearest of kin. He is my, uh, 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 my uh, friend. He is my equal. He's all of that. Jesus Christ is that person whom he's referring to here. So, when we're talking about remembering the Savior, we need to remember the sword that he went through, but also we need to remember the fact that he's the shepherd. There's that love that's, that's connected between the Father and the Son, and between the Son and you and I, which also connects the love between the Father and you and I as well. 
All of that is wrapped up in one. In fact, there is no stronger term that would connect the deity of the Messiah than this verse here. No stronger term used other than my fellow. It shows that he is man, but he's also God. United, equal, confidant, companion, associate, next of kin. He's all of that, but he's also so much more. I think Zechariah is trying to get us to focus our attention upon one person. The Savior. All right? The Savior. Yes, sin's going to be dealt with. The prophets, the false prophets, they're going to be dealt with. Hey, that false prophet I told you about a minute ago, God's going to deal with him. I ain't worried about him. Who is he, preacher? It doesn't matter. I know some people are worried about who the Antichrist is. I'm going to be honest with you. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me who he is. It doesn't matter to me his identity or where he comes from. I have some ideas. I'll give you those one of these days, all right? But I have some ideas to all of that. Is it important that we know? If it, if it was important for us to know, God would tell us who it was. But if we ain't going to be here, then it don't matter. Does that make sense? Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit too logical. Maybe. I don't know. Watch this now in the text. When the sword comes to the shepherd, the one who is, who is connected here, I, I forgot to mention this, the sheep. All right, forgot to mention the sheep. Throw that one out there. All right. So the sheep is also connected here. Watch this now. He says, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Who is the sheep? All those who are associated with the shepherd. The shepherd cares for the sheep. All right. So if you're one of Christ, then you are a sheep. Now, that's, that's what we learn from the book of John, right? My sheep, I know them. Uh, that, I, they, they, um, yeah, that verse. Yeah. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. There it is. All right. It was coming. It was coming. Just slower getting there, all right? So, so we, we are part of that group as far as the shepherd is concerned and the sheep. However, primarily at this point in time, while all of this is going on, there is a, there is a, 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 a situation here that takes place whenever the, the shepherd in the text is crucified. Then when the sword, the judgment comes upon him, what happens? What happens to the sheep? What happens to the followers of the shepherd whenever he's crucified? They scatter. Remember the disciples when Jesus was arrested? Where are they at? Where'd they go? You know, Peter followed afar off. I got to give it to Peter on that one. But where's everybody else? Scatter. Jesus also said this. He made reference to the fact that when when he would die, that the sheep would be scattered. His own people would be scattered. Ever since Jesus came, died, was buried, and ascended to heaven, what's happened to Israel? Where are they at? Where's the Jewish people? They're everywhere, scattered all over the world. So there's a connection between those two, okay? You and I as sheep, okay, we could use that. But more importantly, as because this... This uh, Zechariah is written to the nation of Israel. He's prophesying to the nation of Israel. They also are referenced as sheep here in this 
particular instance because of their scattering whenever Jesus Christ went to the cross. Peter talks about it in 1st and 2nd Peter. All right, to those who are scattered abroad. And he lists all the nations that the people were scattered to. There are many references to that scattering that goes on across the world. So we have the sheep also referenced here. But one other thing I want to show you, and that is the scattered. The scattered comes in. This, of course, refers not only to the disciples, but when he was arrested, but all those when, they, when he was crucified, they were scattered. The entire nation, they too were scattered across the world. But listen, listen. God, in his great mercy and love, will bring them back together as an act of love towards them. How do we know that? Look at the verse again. Look at verse 7 again. <clears throat> he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. What does he mean? He says, I'm going to use my hand to bring them back, to turn them back to me. That's what he is referencing there in that verse. So there's a lot in verse number 7 that we have unpacked tonight, okay? As we remember the Savior. What is the Savior going to do? Well, he's already done much of this. He's already died. He has experienced the judgment of God by the sword and the judgment for sin. He is that shepherd. The sheep are, have scattered all across the globe. All right, His own people have scattered across the globe. But he is going to bring them back. So there's a lot in, in, in that verse. One verse of scripture prophetical that Zechariah says for even for you and I. For the nation of Israel, yes. As all the things that the shepherd has done and what he is, what he is about to do. But then it gets really interesting in verse 8. Verse 8 and 9 give us one more thought, and I want you to see this. The remnant saved. The remnant saved. Now remember what happened to the sheep. Where are they at now? Scattered. They're everywhere. Watch what he does now, verse 8. And it should come to pass that in all the land, saith who? The Lord. Two parts therein shall be cut off and die. But the third shall be left therein. Two-thirds, two-thirds are going to die. Now, mathematically, the, 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 the numbers are not as important as it is what is happening. Yes, two-thirds. Why is it that two-thirds? Why is it that... You know, just a few, a couple of months ago, that so many Israelis died in the attack. And I know some people say, well, I thought they were God's people. Yes. I thought they were God's children. Yes. They, yeah, true. True. So, so what is going to happen here is simply this. God in His righteous judgment and justice will take out two-thirds of the population of his own people to preserve a remnant that will truly worship him. How do we know that? Look at verse 9. Watch this. And I will bring the third part through the fire. And I will refine them as silver is refined. I will try them as gold is tried. 
They shall call on my name. I will hear them. And I will say, it's my people. And they'll say, the Lord is my God. All right, so here's what happened. Here's Zechariah. He, he doesn't see the age of grace in which we're living in right now. Uh, but he, he does see, however, the Messiah rejected, crucified. But he also sees him as taking part of those, that refining process, that trying process of which he will take care of Israel from a national standpoint. He is going, they are going to experience some great distress and great trial. I'm talking about his own people, the nation of Israel. Let me ask you this. All throughout her history, if you read any part of Israel's history, you will note that they have experienced a lot of distress and a lot of trial over the course of their existence. Am I right? Okay, we can see a lot of that in Scripture, but we can also see a lot of that from a historical standpoint as well. Just in the last century, you know, uh, you know World War II, six million of them were, were slaughtered. So what, what is it? Why, why is that happening? Yes, there's anti-Semitic um, people in the world. There's people who hate them. And, and, but yet at the same time, there's the judgment of God. Here's what, here's what he's going to do. As we see the refining process and the trying process, the distress and the trials that come, they are going to go through that because God wants someone who will truly love and worship Him for who He is. And so He will remove any obstacle in the way. Right. Any obstacle in the way... God will remove it so that he will be worshipped. Mm. Now that's tough. It's, it's a hard one to swallow. I'm going to be honest with you. It's a hard one to swallow. Two-thirds of the population of people are going to be killed. Yeah. We can, go, we can even go over to the Reve- book of the Revelation and we can discover that there, uh, there is a, um, uh, many people, millions of people who will be killed during the time of the tribulation, the great tribulation. What is the process? Why is God doing this? Because He wants people who will trust Him. Remember, remember on a couple of occasions, and we can make reference to a couple of different ones in, in the Old Testament, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call out one. Remember a fellow named Korah? Korah was rebellious. Korah went against against Moses, who was the leader, and he, he didn't want to follow the instructions, all right? So what did God do? He killed him. All right, he opened up the earth, you're gone. All right. And anybody else that was associated with him? That's tough. I don't want to be associated with Korah, do you? I, mean, I don't want to be close to a Korah. All right, that is, that is going to experience the judgment of God. Now, we, we, we have to understand that even, even in today, well, I mean, know that's history and oh, it makes for a great story and wonderful preaching and all that stuff about rebellion. But listen, listen, the same is true today. Rebellious people will pay the price. God will, He will make sure justice and judgment is handled properly. And He'll do it carefully. And properly to the point 
I want people who are going to be submissive to me. I want people who are going to be obedient to me. I want people that will recognize that I am the only living and true God. Now, when, at the last part of verse number 9, the Bible says this. He says, when they call, he says, I will hear them, and they shall say what? Look at it, look at it. What does it say? The Lord is my God, right? The Lord is my God. All right, the Lord there in that text is the, the name for God, Yahweh, or the existing one. The existing one tells us that he is not dead, but he is Alive. If he's the existing one, that means he's still alive. All right? Then God in that text is Elohim. Okay, that's the name Elohim that's given him, meaning that he is the one true God. So he is the living one true God, the existing one who is the true and living God. So the people will recognize this fact. Whenever all of this happens, whenever the, the people are tried, whenever the silver is refined and the gold is tried and, and all the dross and the impurities and the weeds are gone, all right, all, when all of that happens, he has a remnant of people who will be true to him and they will say, we worship the one true and living God. That's it. That's what he wants. That's what God wants. That is what is going to happen. You know, I think this should happen now. I really do. I really do think that this should happen now. Amongst us, we know what the text says. If we study the text, we learn something about it. We should go ahead just and, and, and recognize that He is the one true and living God and just go ahead and worship Him now. Let's cut to the chase. Let's get rid of the impurities. Let's take care of all of the, the issues and the problems and all that stuff. Get sin. Get clean. Get, get our life clean. Get it life straightened up. Let's worship the one true and living God. Be done with it. Don't, that way we don't have to go through the turmoil and the distress and the trial and all that. We can experience worshiping the one true and living God and be excited about it. Anyway, that. Is chapter 13. Now, here's what happens in chapter 14. I didn't mean to go this long because I know we got to take care of this business here. But chapter 14, guess what happens? That Messiah that we've been talking about, that good shepherd that we just mentioned, the, 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 the Son of God, Jesus Christ, He is coming back. The day of the Lord will come. And chapter 14 talks all about that. That's chapter 13, Zechariah. We're almost there with this book, all right? We're almost done with this minor prophet. Anyway, let's bow for prayer. Father, we do love you so much. We're grateful, grateful uh, for your blessings. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity we have to study your holy and precious word. Father, we ask of you uh, that you would take the lesson tonight, the words, and Lord, may they be helpful to encourage our hearts, encourage our lives, and help us to... Uh, to see the importance of serving the one true and living God right now. Thank you for the attention everyone's given. Pray, Lord, that your greatest of blessings be on every heart. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.